KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. There is a child care crisis right now in the U.S. There's not enough of it. What there is can be quite expensive, and the ripple effects of this crisis are significant. Has this always been the case? How much of a factor has the pandemic been? And most importantly, how do we start to address and fix this situation? For this conversation, we caught up with Dr. Tom Conway. He is the chairperson of the Teacher Education Department and an associate professor at Cabrini University. To kind of set the table for this discussion, pre-pandemic, what would you say was the state of childcare in the U.S. overall? One word summary, horrible. Uh, it's been a 30 plus year issue in the United States. All you have to do is look at any national group, any uh, state report, any uh, government report on either side of the political spectrum, right? So every group has the stats, the data to show the United States doesn't invest in the early childhood sector. And it's almost like a hunger games. You know, if you're, if you have, it's this competing war of who has the money to be able to afford that for their child. And then people who, you know, just because of life circumstances are not at that same privileged, maybe salary level, you know, then have the guilt of feeling like somehow they're doing less or less by their children because they can't get into the market. So this has been known by parents. This is known by by educators. This is known by many people for a long time, pre-pandemic, pre this period of time. But what the pandemic finally has done is allow everyone to acknowledge, you know, the the unspoken thing in the room, right? That we don't do well by childcare in the United States. And, and, and I've seen various political, you know, we have two political parties, right? Effectively. So Republicans, Democrats, if we just use them that have been running, but we have other political parties, but everyone always focuses on what they will do better by for children and us who are in industry, us who research uh, early childhood, you know, it's like those false promises you keep hearing and those alarm bells, which we've been setting off in said reports or said articles or said research are now our reality. It's not even that parents can't find a place to get their child. They're on these massive wait lists in some places. They also aren't able to keep the workers. That was a pre-pandemic problem. I think when you look at the stats, like if you look at the New York Times, you look at the Washington Post, you look at um, NACI, National um, Association for the Education of Young Children, all various things equals out to like one third of childcare workers tend to leave within the first few months. And then definitely anywhere from 50 to 60% end up leaving within the first year. And so it's a constant hiring problem for center directors and people who own child care centers. So I'm hoping that, you know, colleagues and friends who are in the early childhood sector can find, you know, individuals who are willing to work with our, our young kids, our toddlers, our, our babies, you know, and we need that, right? You know, because, you know, what we also are hearing from um, the business sector that is not early childhood are, well, you need to come back to the office and they're not lying to them. They're just like, I don't have childcare. 
I can't work in the office. I'll still work from home and try to figure out what I can do piecemeal with family members or others that might be able to watch, you know, their two-year-old while they go back for a meeting in the office downtown or wherever that might be, you know, where they're working. So that was a long answer to your first question to basically say it's been a problem, but what the pandemic, I think, in lots of parts of our industries, you know, early childhood, you know, education, fill in the blank, any industry, it's it's shown how we've piecemealed together band-aid problems over the decades uh, and just become too polaristic on things that shouldn't really divide us. You know, we should want to do well by children. When it comes to the worker shortage, and you cited those incredible statistics, is the problem the pressure of the job of having so many little lives that need constant attention? Uh, is it the pay? Is it, you know, in the last 18 months, is it fear of COVID? I mean, I don't expect you to have the answer, but from what you're hearing, from what the research says, what's at the top of the list? Why the, the job searches are so in crisis mode right now? It is the pressure of the job pre-pandemic, but definitely pandemic, of working with our most vulnerable, our most young, um, of caring for infants, uh, for those who accept you know, newborns up to age two, some centers, early childhood is not until maybe they're potty trained, for example, that they could be there. But the stresses, right, of working with kids that age, they're fun, a lot of energy, takes a lot of energy. Anyone who has kids of their own or has nephews or nieces, um, you, you you understand. And that's usually one-on-one, right? Yeah, the amount of energy. Now imagine, like you said, all the little ones around you. So it's that pressure, you know, people who go into this work at that age level, they're, it's a vocation. They're called like those who stay, they're good. We want them with our young kids. They're nurturing men and women, you know, generally stereotypically it's been mostly a female dominated profession, but nonetheless, you know, they're there, the, the ones who are there for long haul, but they see these people come and go and they want them to succeed. They give them professional development. They do everything to try to help. But it's just like, people are like, if I'm getting paid this, I'm going to go work at nothing against McDonald's, but I'm making more money there. And in fact, I believe it was New York Times, you know, a couple of days ago, had a long article about pay and pay inequity in early childhood. But highlight everything I already know and that we know is that on average, it's around 961 an hour that centers can pay some centers that... um are a little more advanced or have a little more funding or backing sometimes can bump that up a little bit more per hour, but the hours are, are off. Right. So think about it. You, if you're going to work and you have to be in work at eight 30 or nine o'clock, you're dropping your kid off at an early childhood center, potentially in the seven o'clock hour, you know, to make your commutes to wherever you're commuting to. And so as a result, they're open early. And what do they also do? close late. So you're talking a long shift for, you know, the people who are in early childhood, anywhere from 10 to 12 hours, you know, they get their breaks and things they need to do, but nonetheless, they're there all day. So that's why those centers tend to have a lot of staff. It's not just one one teacher with 15 kids that wouldn't be allowed. Instead, you have teacher aides, you have other supports, 
who are there as the person who is the teacher record with a group or a class, you know, are engaging them in all the stimulating, all the early childhood brain development activities that we know do well by by a young individual. So it's the pay, it's the hours. Um, now, as we're seeing Walmart, Amazon, fast food, they're not hiring, right? That Those industries, service industry jobs in particular, are finding it difficult to get people to work. Uh, why? Because they're finding some other jobs, right? That will allow them to work from home. Some of the things that they got to experience during the pandemic because they were forced to. I, I know that from friends in the tech industry. There are a lot of articles of people who work in IT, for example, who are like, I'm not coming back to your office. I can get paid more at this company that's going to allow me to work from home. Uh, and so we're going to have, I think, a rather dramatic shift in, in work and what that looks like and feels like for us as a society. But in the immediately, the crisis that we're having is because of that pay. And it's a catch-22. You know, Governor Wolf or Governor Murphy or someone could fund or, or a legislative assembly could, you know, fund, which they do, early childhood initiatives, uh, regardless of political party. But that's still not enough to make up for all the costs, right? The upkeep of a building, you want to add its cleanliness, especially with COVID-19. That was some of the other fears that are highlighted by center directors and others of why people are left even during the pandemic. If I'm remembering correctly, start strong PA, and I am remembering that correctly, 93% of Philadelphia care workers left. You know, they, you know, in terms of not left, but not 93% of the workforce, but 93% of those centers lost some type of staffing. Statewide, it's not any better. It's 92% of state centers, early childhood to pre-K programs, Head Start programs have seen staff leave. And they've left for other jobs, you know, because not that it's easier to work in the service industry, by no means. I My high school job in the college was Acme. So I, I understand, you know, that's, they're making good wages, but at the same time, you're still dealing with the public. So, you know, it's grass is always greener, so to speak, but you can't deny that they're going to make sometimes twofold their salary if just by hopping to a different industry. So my son is nine. When he was born, we were looking for childcare. My wife worked prior to his birth. And when we started running the numbers, what she made basically would be a wash for child care. So yes. she just didn't work, stayed home, and that's been the case. I guess my one anecdote kind of fill how is it that child care is so expensive, but the people providing it, you just laid out how little they're getting paid. Now, you mentioned the cleanliness and upkeep for the buildings, and that is not cheap, but that just seems to me as just a guy. There seems to be a disconnect there that maybe you can help me square the circle. Right. So, if, you know, now, now, now we're hopping into economics 101 of the child care industry. So underfunded mandate, you know, it wasn't mandated, you know, in terms of actual school age of when you as a family get in trouble if your child's not attending school, it's not until much later in life. And in fact, in some states, it's not even until first grade you know, that you really have to enroll a child in, in care. So this part of the industry never caught up with what established pre-K, if a public school district has one of those, 
through to where we fund. We spend a lot of money, which is not a bad thing, but we spend a lot of money in, in, in educating children. So that money's there, but we're not down in the earlier sector. When it's when they are the most vulnerable, most in the development, most things happening early in intervention one on one tells you that if for some reason your child has something happening for them, you get it, catch it early on 10 times over, they will be successful as they move forward. But if you don't have to enroll your kid to later in uh, to kindergarten and you don't even in Pennsylvania, they don't even have to go to kindergarten technically. Um you know, you have a kid, if they were to really wait that long, that first grade teacher is teaching everything about school. So that's one side that's, that's, but to your question. So the budget of it, the economics of it, one is all the physical plant stuff. You know, if you are birthed through to a certain age, you have cribs, you have all, you know, kids can be messy, right? And so all the supplies that go into just the body bodily functions of young, young ones, um, figuring out the layout of the centers, all the regulations from our Department of Health Services that then get layered on top that we want to be there. Obviously, a parent, that's not an easy decision for a mom and dad to send their toddler, their young kid off to some stranger, right? And so you want those regulations. Those regulations cost money. You know, fire regulations, fire prevention, all the trainings, when it comes to child abuse and the background checks and making sure that the people who are there are the ones that should be there. Uh, there are no certifications that are expected of this time frame. Instead, a high school diploma um, will get you into the field. If I was a center director, I want to find someone who has that nurturing background. In fact, I would love someone to have some early childhood perspective. And we have programs that can do that. There are childhood development associate degrees that typically are nine credits in, in background and then the rest is apprenticeship. So that is very popular to look for individuals who have that background because at least that person has training, especially in development training. Um, and so that costs money because you want to pay them some more. You need the teacher record and there's only so many students allowed or children allowed to a teacher in the, in that area, regular public schools, we cram them in. It's like, okay, okay, here's 25, here's 30 students per teacher. That would never, you can't, you can't do that because then that kid's overlooked. So you have that, you know, the top rated programs have several staff members to almost a two to one ratio. And, and, and that's needed. You know, think of, I don't know how your kid was, but daddy, daddy, mommy, 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 you know, that constant attention. And sometimes it's necessary. Other times they just want the attention, you know, that developmental stage that kids go through. Uh, so the cost of just the people alone to run it and, and then the food and other things that happen. So it's not a cheap venture. And people who sometimes open centers think, that they can do this and like they want to do this, they get in centers close very quickly, you know, because the, the, just the expense, you know, if you don't own the property outright, Philadelphia, there are a lot of, you know, those centers that are out of people's homes. Why? Because they, at least they own that property, but then they have to get up to code just like any business. So all the costs that go with that. So they're, they're not hidden factors, just go through anyone's, 
books and you'll see where the monies are. And the only reason they're able to succeed is because of grants, because of government funding that they can apply for. But by then accepting that, they then have to make sure they're at a certain level. That's how, you know, it's, we've, make people do things in society. You know, some some directors, for example, with the vac- vaccination mandates, some wonder what will that do to the industry as well for workers? You know, what if some workers don't want to do it? Are they going to lose those individuals? You know, so that might even exasperate further, even though we know logically that makes sense to be vaccinated, especially amongst young children. You know, because that was another concern, you know, this is now hopping back to your prior question, oh, why some people left is because young kids eventually now, especially with Delta variant, you know, can easily pass that on to, you know, breakthrough cases, which thankfully are not a lot, but could happen, right? And so that fear of the unknown, I think, is still also impacting. So then the parents, you're paying that money. On average, the New York Times cites it as $1,100 a month. You know, so, you, you know, times 12, you could wash someone's part-time salary out very quickly. I want to dig into, like, the ripple effects of this. Yeah. There is the here and now that you need somebody to watch your child so that you can work or whatever. But kind of dig into the ripple effects of this. And you talked about it. The workforce is not going to be able to get back to or get to where we want it unless this is fixed. The problems that maybe young kids have developmentally that if they don't get into a a preschool scenario that don't get picked up till their first grade kind of talk about all the the tentacles of this that go beyond just the here and now i need somebody competent and caring to watch my child right and so back to the crisis of hiring that's that's been in the profession pre-pandemic so now you know as parents you're looking for a center and there's something nearby maybe the community Y nearby you has a decent program it's it's rated that's the other thing too that helps you know parents make decisions are the stars rating system in pennsylvania that we use from a star one through star four center um that the Octel and our Department of um, um, Human uh, Health Services and DHS, they take a look at those centers, inspect those centers, and there are certain ways that you jump up. How do you jump up? Well, more of your staff are educated, have degrees, have associate's degrees, have bachelor's degrees, which earn your points because then the person, yeah, they're good and, and they're great with kids, but you as a parent, okay, it's a star three center versus star two. I'm, I want to go to the star three. Right. By our nature, like, well, star three must be better. It, it, it is because of certain classifications, but then that wait list is forever. And so that's where I was going back to before I used that metaphor to that um, movie, The Hunger Games, where people are, are just like, I need to be on this list or or who do I know to bump ahead if I can. The who knows who type of scenario that plays out here. And so it's stressful for young parents to figure out are they doing best by their kid? Because then you hear the reports on, on action news or KYW news or whatever news about, well, if you don't let your kid start early in this program, then, oh, well, life's over for them. Well, it's not that drastic, but it is. If, if, if there is something, you know, I'll use myself, for example, you know, when I was young, I had a speech impediment and I eventually, 
there wasn't anything drastic. It was the typical hospital rather than hospital, you know, so the pronunciation and eventually I had to get pulled out and go to that van and all that, that happened for me way back in the ancient times of the last century. But that still happens, right? Kids, you know, for our development of speech and language, starting early can help that kid do that. Whereas me, that happened when kids were very aware, right? And then like start teasing you on the playground. And so if you can hop in, you can eliminate some of that for children as they're developing their speech patterns over those first few years. So something just as simple as that, I think alone parents were like, well, I need to find support for this. And so that's what an early childhood center can do, you know, with early intervention strategies of picking up on some of those things and starting, you know, the activities that then the kid can practice that then helps them develop, you know, along to eliminate a speech impediment, or if not eliminate, to how do you counter, you know, the strategies. So, so there's that effect. And so by not getting in or not finding someone to help, some families are then, you know, turning to relatives or others to hopefully help out when they can. Um, and then that's where we have the tablet kids, right? They're, they're on their tablet watching Peppa Pig, and now all of a sudden they have a British accent. You know, I've actually had friends who, who joked about that. They're like, why are they saying controversy and not controversy? You know, because, <laughs> you know, they're watching, you know. You know, Peppa Pig, great, entertaining the kid, educating, but at the same time, you know, British English versus American English. You know, it's like all of a sudden we have all these uh, um, people coming to our classroom with uh, a British accent, you know, but they didn't just immigrate from London. So, and that's, you know, it's parenting's not easy. So I, I see my friends who have young kids, I don't have any young kids in my life at the moment anymore, but, you know, saying here, watch this and limiting that time doing educational stuff, but that's to take place of watching, right? Caring for uh, that these centers can do those engaging activities and, and what's best practice. So it does, you know, I don't know if I didn't really answer that directly with any simple facts, but that over time it has that ripple effect. You know, every delayed year of, of access just delays learning. Doesn't mean that that kid later on, I don't want parents to freak out and think, oh, then my kid's not going to be successful. They will. You know, they have the right teachers, the right programs um, supporting them throughout their schooling. Yes, you'll get them over hoops and hurdles that happen for all of us as individuals. But the research, hand over fist, time and time again, just continues to point to as early as you can start some of these, not overwhelming the kid, they don't need, they can't do calculus yet, but by introducing simple mathematical concepts, you're helping them build that stage that maybe they won't have the terror, you know, be terrified of math that sometimes kids fall into. So how do we, and this is a, it almost sounds like a flippant question, but how do we fix this? Is this... Is this something you need the federal government to throw much more money at? Is there incentive programs? How would you kind of give me a list of things that you, you think would, would really help uh, approach this? And let's say like once we're really out of the pandemic and we are on pretty equal footing where we're not worried so much about the, the, the COVID virus and can we just attack this as the problem it is in regular times. I mean, 
as as a American society, being in education my whole life and seeing it being so properly misfunded, funding is one. Funding has to be there. We just don't fund it. You know, if we look at other industries, entertainment industry, you know, the insane amount of millions of dollars, right? That if we just look at sports, professional sports, the amount of money that we don't even think twice about. And granted, government might not be funding all that, but there are times there are subsidies, right? Where someone doesn't have to pay tax on something when they're building some new stadium or we give something away to keep a team here and lose some of that tax revenue. But hey, we'll make it off of the concession stands later on, whatever the mindset of that. But the amount that goes, and then we penny pinch when it comes to the education budgets. And it's because I guess it, the return on the investment's not seen as quickly as some of these other things. That's my theory of, you know, it's, it's a long journey, right? To see that kid who's born, that newborn, and then where they end up, you know, at the end of, let's say their 18 high school diploma. So that journey's long. And so in our area, just, you know, certain parts of the country do fund differently education. If you look to Florida, we have a partnership here at Cabrini where we've gone down to where some alum have worked in uh, Naples, Florida area, got jobs down there. So in Collar County, it's a funded by county system. So you could be born in the poorest part of Collier County. And you're going to have all the resources at that school and hopefully the teachers that engage your kids in those resources, just as if you were born in a richer part near Naples, right? And go to a school. Here, we're in Delaware County. If I'm born nearby where we are, hey, it's known as a great school district, right? It has all the resources. I see the capital improvement projects happening. But by sheer chance, I'm born in a different part, just 10 miles away. I have a rundown building that we're worried about asbestos. We're worried about this. So just, we don't even in this region, you don't even have to go too far. You could walk, <laughs> you know, if you're like healthy and fit, Hey, I'm going to walk five miles today. You can see the vast differences. So we just do not fund it. So it's a funding problem, right? In terms of early childhood, we have examples, you know, all we have to do, and this happens for us in education oftentimes is look to Europe, look to other democracies, but not even Europe, look to Asia. Japan or other countries that do fund early childhood doesn't mean that parents don't pay or contribute. They do. And a lot of times it's done on the, on a, on a scale, you know, terms, but what they make sure is there's that equity amongst the centers first, and then contributing to the budget is that mix of scale of salary to what you can afford to, um, you know, the opposite, you know, in terms of just government constantly throwing money there. So it's, I think a blend of that would work in our society. You know, someone who's making $23,000 in the part-time job, your wife or some, or or husband or whomever is out there working to pay for the childcare, that shouldn't be a wash for a family. Instead, they should be able to look at that. But what do we do? We tend to do a combined income. And so it, it gets tricky into people's personal finances. But by looking at a sliding scale and contribution and then actually funding, that will help. NISI and other groups talk about power to the profession was a phrase that they use. But it's also making sure that individuals who are there have that background. So an associate's degree, at least minimally. Um, we want them to even have a bachelor's program, get certified, and then give them the 
right salary for that age group. Um, one of the other areas, another uh, an aside here, but to use an example, there's disparity even in a school district on pay. If we, this is not early childhood, but in pay in terms of principals, an elementary principal in a school district tends not to make the same amount of money as the high school principal. Why do you think that's the case? Well, there are a lot of arguments, right? High school's more active. I have more activities. I have all these nighttime stuff. I have all these other headaches. I have more students typically at my high school, whereas you have less students. So there's even disparity, you know, or not equity, equality when it comes to our established school districts in terms of salary scales for similar positions. So our early childhood sector definitely is not making that money at all. Um, and it's not because someone's holding it. It's not because someone's getting wealthier, rich and like, haha, my secret stash of cash that y'all contribute. It's just extremely expensive to care for a child. And anyone who's ever had a child knows that themselves personally. Well, now you're asking for a, a center to care for a group of children that costs a lot of money. And so just looking at those models and just putting our money where our mouth is, you know, you know, politicians and government talk a good game. Every every single candidate running always does. But somehow down the slippery slope of being in the office, it's like, eh, well, that promise didn't get followed through on. At least me in education, I feel like that happens and that frustration happens very frequently. And specific to the early childhood, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you talked about Europe and Asia. We're pretty much on an island how we don't take care of this, right? I mean, as far as the developed world's concerned, and it's not close. Like, it's not like we're fifth out of seven. We're, we're, we, we're we don't we're, even come close to much, where anybody yeah. else does it. Yeah, we're pretty much last. Um, that Times article, and I just found it, it was by um, Claire Miller, and it was on October 6th. In her article, she pulls out some statistics for us. And, you know, I trust that these were the most recent. But 0.2%, so 0.2% of our GDP is spent on childcare for children two or under. You know, so that, old, you know, what does that mean? You know, amounts to basically $200 a year for most families. And when you look at tax credits that sometimes people argue, like, well, give them a tax credit. That does nothing, you know, for a family and because of look at the disparity in terms of that. So when you're looking at tax credits, sometimes people say, well, that dependent tax credit, that same article talks about, okay, well, if you're a richer family, you get $586, whereas someone who is working class or the working poor you know, you're looking at $124 that that credit even gets. So once again, those who might have the wherewithal to find childcare for themselves, um, they can find it. Whereas for the working class and the working poor, how I like to phrase it, don't have that access. And so that should be a concern in a democracy. That should be a concern for us because these are our future citizens. These are our future workers. They're your future employees. So the haves, I've never quite understood that, right? Throughout history, that short-sightedness of somehow not giving to others in society. It's not as 
for, for love of God, in some respect, to use that phrase, you know, social security, I think most people wrap their brain around and accept that. And then when we talk about this somehow, oh, that's socialism or, you know, we can't do that. No, we're already, we are a society that takes care of our needs because if we're all healthy, if we're all caring for the most vulnerable, then we will be better as a society. So when we look at these like lists, you know, who's better in this area? Oh, well, it's Norway. Why are the Scandinavian countries always at the top? Because they make that investment. And it's not, you look at their taxes. That's what I think sometimes scares people who want to do that. They're like, oh God, that really is going to eat into my, my, my wealth a bit here. But then when you look and their success in other area industries, they continue to seem to outperform, right? Or or other um, countries around the world, you know, not just Europe, but other countries in Asia seem to be outperforming. And a lot of it is that investment. It's the investment and the willing to do that at the early stages. So that way you have a literate, a you know society, a society that can think critically. Uh, they understand the various STEM concepts and other things, and so as a result, you know they're they're thinking, what's that next job? What's that next concept uh, that's going to happen for us as a human population? And that's where we tend not to get it right in the United States. To be fair, though, if the two-year-olds were serious, they'd have better lobbyists in Washington to <laughs> take care of this. But I digress. Yeah. But um, maybe we can get Peppa Pig or uh, <laughs> or Sesame Place characters to help us out there. How much we've heard a lot and we've seen a lot in real time this expanded child tax credit that people of families have been receiving since. Uh, you know, I think about uh, July and uh-huh. there's, you know, we've hear so much about this human infrastructure bill they're working on in DC. I, even though I think we will see something pass, uh-huh. are you cautiously optimistic that we are at least starting to get it as a society and starting to move the battleship in the right direction? It, you know, way things work in our society it's not going to be quick but i do feel and maybe it's the crisis moment that a lot of these things are being talked about in circles they weren't talked about before and actually starting to see a little bit of tangible action happening to at least help yeah my personality i've always kind of been a half full approach to society i'm not a pie eye optimist by any means, but I also tend to be half full. And I can't imagine how we would slip back after this point. Look at the polls. You know, every news agency that's out there runs the polls on these infrastructure bills, especially the human infrastructure, as you just mentioned. It's popular. Regardless the divisiveness that's highlighted in the media about our society. And there we've been divisive in many decades over our country's history. But even that aside, this is popular, right? Because people, it hits every family. Every family has kids. Every, even if you're wealthy and rich, you're still paying for those programs for your child because you're working, you're out there, you're doing whatever of, you know, whatever happens, you know, for that family at that income level. But you're doing it, right? And it costs money, you know, to send your kid to a soccer league. Maybe it's not childcare, but it's soccer league. It's still the cost. So I, everyone understands how the purse strings or the pocketbook or the wallet or whatever metaphor I want to use here um, is hit. And so as a result, it's popular, 
right? So with that popularity, here's the time that our, our Congress at the federal level and then hopefully even in our state levels can get this right of funding and not an unfunded mandate, but funding the mandate to do well in early childhood, to actually pay a living wage would be one uh, to workers in early childhood to make sure that those centers are the best centers. And that's where I feel like my job and others who are involved in research and other grant initiatives with early childhood, we want them to understand what are they doing well? Why are you doing that with the kids? Why are you doing that activity? Well, here's why. Here's the brain science 101 behind that, that will nurture and help that child. So all that working together in these current proposed legislation will have a massive shift. It's it's not platitudes that they're saying. If it if they follow through on the current plan and, and Republicans that buy into that plan as well, and they, they are there, they realize this drastic shift. It could be almost New Deal-ish as the New Deal was to ending parts of the Great Depression. Of course, World War II helped accelerate that, but the pandemic, I think, has helped accelerating us to realize we need to do this. You know, if Germany can do this, if the UK can do it to a certain extent, but Scandinavia and Japan and others, just look to those models, right? It, it's been done. And, and, and it's not that it's, you know, the retort or anger I sometimes hear as well. Well, it shouldn't just be free for everyone. Why not? Why not? Why not create that universal care? That's then, so that way the problems that middle school and secondary level teachers sometimes have to address, there'll always be puberty issues, right, for kids, because we all still develop the way that we develop. But some of these other things can be headed off early on in early learning that feeds into pre-K, that feeds into K, and then goes forward from there. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.